Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey there. Now that everyone's wearing masks these days, hopefully, have you noticed how difficult it is to communicate with a mask on? And what about all these online meetings through Zoom and Slack and Microsoft Teams? How does that affect our communication? Well, that's the headline topic of today's show. But before we get to that, I also wanted to tell you about a report coming out of the National Academy of Sciences. They're in Washington, D.C., and their report was about school openings during this pandemic. Now, their report was released in July 15, 2020, and it was written by a group of, I counted, 69 different experts in education, medicine, and public health. And I'll provide a link to their report on our Facebook page, but basically the report concludes that of the K-12 through grades, the most vulnerable age groups in terms of learning, socialization, and availability of school services are the youngest children, those in the K-5 through grades, as well as children needing special education. I interpret their report to say that if a school district decides to only open a portion of their schools, that it should be the kindergarten through fifth grade and special education classes. The NAS is saying that children in the K through third grade are still developing the skills to regulate their own behavior, emotions, and attention, and so they struggle the most with distance learning. Also, K through five students will be impacted the most by not having in-person learning, and they may suffer the greatest long-term academic consequences if they fall behind by receiving pure online instruction. They're also worried that online education for the K-5 through age group makes them more vulnerable to educational inequities, too. They predict that the cost of opening schools correctly, however, you're talking masks, hand washing, social distancing, it's going to be expensive. They estimated $1.8 million for a district of 3,200 students. So for the Jefferson County public school system here in Louisville, Kentucky, you're talking about $55 million just to keep the schools safe. So this is something to think about now that schools and parents throughout the country are struggling with what to do about schooling this year. It looks like those youngest kids are the ones that are most educationally vulnerable. Now let's move from the National Academy of Science to the Kentucky Academy of Science. Starting back in June, the Kentucky Academy of Science initiated their Bench Talk Live series. This is a collaboration with our show, Bench Talk the Week in Science. The first online conference was about designing buildings in the context of the environment. And this installment of Bench Talk Live is about human perception and communication in the times of a pandemic. There were two talks at this Bench Talk Live event. We'll present the first one today and the second one sometime soon. First, you'll hear today from Amanda Fuller, 
who's executive director of the KAS, and then from our speaker, Dr. Naomi Cherilimbakis, a neurobiologist. Take it away, Amanda Fuller. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bench Talk Live from Kentucky Academy of Science. So our theme this evening is perception and communication for a pandemic. This is something that I think has been on our minds a lot in the last few months as our communication modes have changed and, you know, keep changing. (laughs) So I think this is a struggle for a lot of us, especially a lot of us are educators and um, spend a lot of time online. So this is a really interesting topic. I'm excited that we were able to pull it together. I want to introduce our first speaker, Naomi Charlambakis is a PhD graduate from U of L. That's how we know each other. And Naomi, you'll have to say exactly the name of the organization where you are right now, if you don't mind. Naomi's a neuroscientist and is going to talk a little bit about how we get information and how that affects our communication, right? Correct. Yeah, right, thank you. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Amanda. It's good to to see everyone. And um, my, a piece of my heart will always stay in Louisville. I loved it there. <laughs> I did my graduate studies there. So my, my talk is what you see is what you get. I really appreciate the opportunity here. I now work at the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology. That's a mouthful, so we just say FACIB. We're located just outside of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland, and that's actually where the NIH is located, the National Institutes of Health, you know, the primary funder of biomedical research. So we're just up the street from NIH. We have a good communication with them. So we're on the front lines of science and science policy all the time. So it's, it's really a good chance for me to use my scientific skills and also learn on the job about, you know, how policy can affect science. I'm going to go ahead um, and get started in just a little bit more about me. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Kentucky in psychology and mathematics, and then I went to the dark side, and I went to the University of Louisville School of Medicine to do my PhD in anatomical sciences and neurobiology. I've always had this fascination with the brain, and I, I got to do fun things in the brain like reconstruct cells in the part of the brain called the thalamus that I'll get to in just a little bit later, reconstruct them and look at them in 3D. So that was such a fun part of my job and also reconstruct them like here, look at their branch levels and and how intricate their dendrites are. The title of my dissertation was the migration and developmental remodeling of intrinsic interneurons in visual thalamus and the role of retinal signaling. So by the end of this talk, you'll know exactly what I mean by No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But that's a little bit about what I worked on. And so I was really appreciative for Amanda to reach out and um, get a chance to use my neuroscience hat again. So let's go over a little bit about, you know, why is vision so important? Our sense of sight, our vision, it's so important because there's a reason that it's considered the most important sense, right? Because we perceive actually up to 80% of all of our impressions actually through the eye. It's important for things like moving around, you know, getting from A to B, for communicating, for being able to talk to one another, for learning, of course, and protection. You know, animals, you need their sight, of course, to protect themselves, and, and we do too. But it's also important for processing emotions, you know, being able to detect faces and body language. That's a key role in how we interact with people. This is a famous picture. You know, if you're shown a specific kind of face or a grimace, you can kind of tell right off the bat what that person is feeling. Is it anger, disgust, surprise, or happiness? So these are all things that are important for vision and helps us get through our day to day. So how does that all happen? You know, how does the brain process visual information so quickly that it allows us to see the world around us? So I'm going to go over the visual pathway a little bit. 
course, light enters the eye and it goes directly to the back of the eye called the retina. And that's where all of the processing happens. Now, it then exits the eye through the optic nerve and it crosses the optic chiasm. After it crosses this optic chiasm, it's now known as the optic tract. And the first stop it makes is called the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus. And that's primarily where I studied in my PhD. There are two types of cells in the thalamus, the relay cells. These are the cells that take the information from the retina and punt it all the way to the visual cortex. And then there are other cells that stay inside the lateral geniculate nucleus that are called intrinsic interneurons. So this is the base of the brain that you're looking at. That's not really a typical thing that you think of when you think of the brain. So if we look at the brain in the more textbook version, um, you see that the occipital lobe, that's where the information ends up after it comes through the eye and through the thalamus. It's in the very back of the brain. That's the last stop uh, where, where everything happens. The other thing that I wanted to mention was, depending on what you're looking at, there are actually two pathways that emerge from the occipital lobe, that area in the back. This is what neuroscientists call the dorsal and ventral streams. So the dorsal stream is your wear pathway. It carries information about location, distance, and position of objects from the occipital lobe up to the parietal lobe. And that's called the dorsal stream because the parietal lobe is dorsal to the occipital lobe. Dorsal is just a fancy way of saying above. And then the other pathway is the ventral pathway, and that takes information about shape, color, orientation. That takes that information from the occipital lobe down to the temporal lobe, which is located just ventral to the occipital lobe. And ventral is just a fancy way of saying underneath. So there were numerous studies in the 60s and 70s that led to the discovery of these two pathways. And the most notable were the studies in monkeys, actually. So if this area of the brain, the parietal lobe, just dorsal to the occipital lobe was damaged, they found that monkeys had difficulty performing visuospatial tasks, like, for example, locating an object in space. But they were able to successfully perform visual discrimination tasks. That was no problem for them. They were able to point out similarities and differences between objects in terms of their shape and their color. The same was true about the reverse. If the temporal lobe was damaged, they had difficulty conducting visual discrimination tasks, but visual spatial tasks were no problem. So that's what led neuroscientists to think of these two dorsal and ventral paths from the occipital lobe. Now, a major source of information we receive, especially in social circumstances, is due to the fact that we're constantly exposed to faces. We're around people a lot, and this aspect is critical to our everyday interactions and, and our relationships. And it's so important that there's a specific region in the brain specifically dedicated to processing faces, and it's called the fusiform face gyrus. It's located in the inferior temporal cortex, and you can see it highlighted here in red on the right. What you're looking at is the base of the brain again. So if you're holding the brain and you're holding it face up, what's in red is called the fusiform gyrus. Now, this small sliver that you see here in purple, this is known as the mid-fusiform sulcus. It's in, it sits in the middle of the area, and it plays a key role in facial recognition. And it's formally called the fusiform face area. And you can also see it here in light blue here, where again, you're looking at the base of the brain. Just this small area, when you see a face, that is what's registering in your brain as, oh, I'm looking at a person's face right now. I also wanted to show you what it looks like if you were undergoing an MRI and you were looking at an image of a face like you see here. 
again, you see this particular area of the brain that lights up each time you see a face. Neurons are firing and telling each other in the brain that this is a person that you're looking at. So that's the fusiform face area. Now, then COVID-19 happened, right? And you've seen this image a lot. Um, it's plastered all over the news, the headlines. So, so we're used to, to COVID-19 and hearing about it. And it's definitely changed the way we interact with each other. So now we're forced to wear masks, right? And it covers a big part of our face, both our nose and our mouth. We're forced to communicate through Zoom like we are now throughout the day, meetings, Skype, Zoom, FaceTime. All of those things are now we're having to adjust our communication styles so that we can continue life as usual. And that comes at a price, right? Masks can definitely impact the way we communicate. With half of your face being covered, it can be quite difficult to gauge your emotions. And it can be especially hard for people that are hearing impaired because they lose the key resources to understand their surroundings and communicate with others. And that leads us to misunderstand people. Like you see in this panel here, it's really hard to distinguish what this person is feeling when they're all three different emotions. Misunderstanding people, because we rely so much on seeing the movement of people's lips to guide that conversation, when we lose that, we have to solely focus on what someone is hearing and what they're saying. And I wanted to illustrate just how important the visual system is in informing other human senses, particularly our hearing, and how our visual system informs other human senses, and particularly how it plays in our current new normal of wearing, wearing masks and speaking through screens most of the time. So what I'm going to show you now is the role visual cues play in our communication. And it's not new by any means. And in fact, researchers actually discovered just how interconnected our visual system is our sight with our hearing. And that was way back in 1976. And it was called the McGurk effect, where basically what we see changes what we actually hear. So I wanted to play a short video and see if you can hear the differences between what this person is saying. the McGurk effect. And if you listen to that closely, it's actually the same sound in each scenario, but his mouth is moving differently. So in one case, he's saying the B sound, but in other cases, he's making the V sound. And that forces our brains to try and reconcile, oh wait, he's saying a B sound, but his mouth is moving differently. He's actually saying V. So we end up hearing something differently. It's not the same across people, but for the majority of people, you do see a difference. And it, this is what's called a top-down effect because our brain automatically tries to match what we're seeing with what we're hearing. And you find that this effect is actually more prominent in adults. Children rely more on a bottom-up approach. They use the raw sensory information, either the visual cues or, or the hearing cues, one at a time to try and inform what they're seeing and hearing. But as adults, we've heard this over and over again that our brain automatically does it and we hear just one thing and combine it together. So going back to the neuroscience of all this, studies have shown that this McGurk effect actually means that your superior temporal sulcus is working. On the right, you'll see a photo of the brain, and in green, the superior temporal sulcus is highlighted. 
Sulcus just refers to the grooves that you see throughout the brain. And what this area does is it combines visual and auditory information into one. And there have been several studies demonstrating that the role this part of the brain plays, and one in particular that I've highlighted here, Beecham et al. in 2010, they found that when they silenced this particular part of the brain and then presented a video similar to the one that I just showed you on the previous slide, where someone is saying a particular word, but the mouth movements aren't matching up, when this part of the brain is silenced, the researchers found that patients were less likely to report the McGurk effect because the brain wasn't trying to combine what it was seeing and what it was hearing. So on the bottom right, you'll see again how the superior temporal sulcus is highlighted. And these tiny dots highlight and represent other studies that have verified how certain parts of the brain along this superior temporal sulcus are lighting up every time they hear a word or they hear a narrative or they hear a phrase. So that's the McGurk effect, and that's how the neuroscience lies behind it. And it's fascinating when you're trying to read lips and put words together what your brain is doing at work. So all of that to say, our eyes and our faces are very expressive, right? And because they're our most expressive features, when they're concealed, like when we're wearing a mask, it can be pretty problematic for many people. And that's why several healthcare workers are actually taping pictures of themselves on their gowns in, in hospitals to try and ease patient anxiety to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm still a happy person, you know, don't, don't worry. So with COVID-19 right now, we're, we're forced as humans to adjust our communication styles to try and avoid being misunderstood. And some of the things to think about when we're, we're listening to others, try to focus on their eye expressions. When you can't read their lips or see them smiling, focus on their eye expressions because the eyes can express a lot of emotion as well. When you're doing the speaking, Try to put more emphasis on your inflection and your tone. Um, that can indicate what mood or emotion you're feeling. Use those eyebrows. You know, you can get a lot out of those eyebrows and, and be more expressive with them. Body language and posture, be a little bit more expressive with those uh, because you are limited now with, with what's covering your face. And if you don't understand, it's important to continue to ask questions so that you don't misunderstand what someone is saying. So that's the mask aspect of COVID-19 and how vision plays a role. Now, virtual learning, that presents another wrinkle in all of this because that also impacts communication as well, something we're doing a lot of during COVID-19. The truth is virtual conversations are very different from in-person interactions. With in-person interaction, the brain is focusing on several things all at once. It takes into account someone's body language, and it also takes into account something as minor as, you know, your, your breathing patterns. If someone is getting ready to interrupt you, you can tell, you know, by them breathing suddenly, that they're getting ready to, to say something. Those features are a lot harder to distinguish in a virtual setting. So it requires us to have sustained attention to words and, and to make sure you're understanding what's coming out of their mouth. That takes a lot of effort and it, it's very draining. And on top of that, a lot of the time there can be poor video quality or unstable internet connections. And that makes it harder to figure out exactly what someone's feeling or, or saying. So all of that leads to what we call Zoom fatigue. <laughs> We're just around our computers all the time, and it's just tiring us out, and our brain is constantly at work. So because areas like this fusiform face area and the superior temporal sulcus, those are all neurologically tuned to recognize and process our faces with the auditory cues that we're hearing. And because we're naturally wired to interact with people in person, these areas of the brain are now being forced to come up with alternative ways to compensate. In other words, they almost need to relearn how to process faces and emotions accurately. 
And so is it possible to even unlearn all those years of, of practice and experience? It may not be easy, but it's actually possible if we do it often enough. And at the rate things are going, it seems like, you know, we may get used to this. It goes back to actually a fundamental principle of neuroscience, and that's called neuroplasticity. That's the ability of the brain to adapt or modify connections to, in accordance with changes in the environment, like masks or virtual learning. Neuroplasticity, it happens all the time throughout development. It's how we learn how to walk, ride a bike, take the same route to work. These habit-forming patterns that we do throughout our lives and throughout each day, it's a neurological process that requires repetition. And the reason it happens is due to what we call Hebb's Law. And as neuroscientists, we like to say neurons that fire together, wire together. Essentially, what that means is when there is a pre-existing neuronal connection, like you see down here at the bottom, these are two neurons. This one neuron on the left is carrying information through its axon to its dendrites out here. And you see the synapse right here. And it's going to connect with this second neuron. Now, this connection is called a synapse. And the two cells that are connected, they relate messages back and forth, like you see in this picture here. Chemicals are going back and forth, and they're talking to each other. So once that happens, it allows that second cell to carry that information forward onto other cells and other parts of the brain. So if this connection is persistently activated, like if you're learning to ride a bike and you keep practicing, you keep doing it over and over, eventually those connections become stronger. And ultimately, riding a bike is not something you have to learn or keep falling over. You can just do it. Your brain is, is used to it. So messages that are relayed between these two cells through this synapse, that is essentially the crux of Hebb's Law. So a thing that I, I like to think about, too, is if you don't use it, you'll lose it. That's how our brain is wired together. And the more we use it, the stronger the connections become. My mom grew up in Germany, and she was very fluent in German for, for the longest time. But after living here in the States for so many years and not having anyone to interact with, over time, she eventually lost her ability to speak German. Those connections are still there, though, but they just lost that practice. She went to Germany for two weeks in one summer, and in two days, she was able to pick it right back up, and she was fluent all over again. And that's the crux of Hebb's Law. Over and over, repetition in neuroplasticity makes our connections stronger. Neurons that fire together wire together. An analogy that I was taught growing up and, and something I always try to go back to in graduate school was imagine a small artificial here like you see here. And on the left, you'll see there are some small grooves and that would be equivalent to like your pre-existing neurons. These are your inactive synapses. Neurons are connected to each other, but they're not talking all that much. Now, when it rains, like on the right with repetition over and over, those grooves become deeper and deeper and the water descends down the mountain mainly through those grooves. So similarly, those pre-existing synaptic connections, when they're activated and when they're constantly used, they become stronger. So it's that assembly of several strongly connected neurons together that becomes the basis of, of learning a habit. So that's Hebb's Law. And in short, that's what I wanted to convey to everyone about, you know, the visual system and its impact, you know, now that we're kind of navigating this new normal. So the visual pathway is essentially from the retina to the lateral geniculate nucleus to the visual cortex. There are two pathways, what and where, that distinguish different aspects of your visual field. Your fusiform face area, which is deep inside the brain, that's the part of the brain that lights up when you see a face and it helps you to process emotion. 
COVID-19, you know, we're now entering this new era of virtual interactions and, and talking with each other with masks. That can complicate things. It can complicate communication, and we can have instances where we see the McGurk effect or Zoom fatigue. But small adjustments can help, and over time and with repeated use, you can form new habits and help to enhance our interactions, and that's because of neuroplasticity and Hebb's Law. So that's my presentation. I look forward to questions. Thanks, Naomi. I appreciate that you have illuminated for me what is Zoom fatigue for real, because people say that all the time, and I didn't know that it was scientifically explainable. So <laughs> I'm now really glad to know why that happens. Seems like maybe more parts of the brain are working in all yes. communication modes. So that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, So of here's a question. How long does it take for rewiring? Is it days, hours, weeks? What are we talking about here? That's a good question. You know, there's that thing that they say, you know, it takes two weeks to form a new habit. And for the most part, that's true. That can change with age. Your genetics play a role as well. But I would say it's not a days kind of thing. It's more on a weeks to months kind of habit, which is why I say, you know, now that with COVID-19, we have been doing this for a few months now, it can help us to form this, these new habits. It's a prime time to pick up a new one. <laughs> Does that mean that Zoom might be less fatiguing at some point in the future? It could be because we get used to it and we're strengthening those connections that we're used to talking to each other through this. It might get easier. Here's another question. Is it more difficult for children who are hanging out with other children and parents that have masks on? Are they less plastic? Oh, that's a good. Actually, no, I would argue that they have this clean slate. You know, they aren't having to unlearn years of experience with people to people interaction. And they can naturally form those connections and understand someone through a mask. Now, when we move away from masks and we have a vaccine eventually, and we don't have to wear one all the time, they may have to relearn this art of reading lips and, and associating sound with, with vision. One suggestion, um, I like this one, suggestion for lecturing behind a mask is to be sure that students are getting the words that you say versus the words that they hear. And I like, Naomi, how you illustrated that. <laughs> the words yeah. you say might not be the words somebody right, hears. Right, right. And now I feel like a closed captions would be really helpful, too, to kind of reiterate what you're trying to say, make sure if someone can read it and not, you know, misinterpret what they may be hearing. That's really interesting. I was on Google Meet once recently, and they have a closed captioning feature. Yeah, I know. And when I was clicked the PowerPoint, like, to start my presentation, it gave me the option to have subtitles. Mm -hmm. so, so these are all steps in the right direction. I did see a question about this implication of visual pathways and disorders. And that, that's a great question because that's, you know, at the crux of, of basic science. And, and the thing that I, I thought immediately of is, is epilepsy, for example. So in the thalamus, which is the area I studied in grad school, the neurons are overexcited in the thalamus. So when they are stimulated too much by light or by noise, it can kind of trigger their neurological system and then they can have an episode. So the visual system is implicated in several disorders and that's what scientists are trying to figure out all the time. And so, yeah, that's a great question. That is a great question. And now we know a little bit more about how somebody, you know, would <laughs> go about researching that, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that you also gave us some practical tips <laughs> for communicating. <laughs> so thanks so much. Folks can find the recording of this program at our website at kyscience.org. Look under Bench Talk Live. We have all of our programs archived there.
So thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. The talk you just heard was by neurobiologist Dr. Naomi Cheralambakis. Amanda Fuller chaired the lecture. And we want to thank the Kentucky Academy of Science for letting us rebroadcast this fascinating talk. See you next week. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.